first reading is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And our New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 32. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of a spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father, we know about the rain that comes down from heaven. We know about the rain that falls 
from the sky and we know that it does not return without water in the earth. We see it water in the earth even this week. Uh, we can see it, the rain produce uh, the beauty of green grass and uh, flowers. And Father, just as the rain falls down and, and nourishes the earth, we pray right now that your word would come to us and nourish us in our inner beings. Teach us, guide us, correct us, change us, comfort us, challenge us by your Holy Spirit. Challenge us with your grace, comfort and challenge us with your grace. May Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, touch and transform our lives for his sake. Amen. 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 There you go. Our French General Napoleon Bonaparte is said to have said on the eve of his death, I marvel that where the ambitious dreams of myself and of Alexander and of Caesar and hopefully Putin should have vanished into thin air. I marvel that where the ambitious dreams of myself and Alexander and Caesar should have vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destiny of men and of nations. Jesus is magnetic. There's something about him that is irresistible. It is true, of course, a Judean peasant has captivated the world. That's historically true. We believe that from that empty tomb to the world today and in this room this morning, people drawn to Jesus, captivated by him. Christianity is on the rise in the world today, maybe not in the West, but it is not in decline. Indeed, I saw a clip, a YouTube clip of Ukrainians this week in a subway singing to Jesus and to no one else. Today we begin our Lent series, I know, I know, a week early, Grace in the Life of Jesus, a series in Luke's Gospel. Now, for simplicity, and in the hope that you'll remember this talk, I used to be a youth minister, I want you to imagine for a moment a magnet. Is it a horseshoe? Is it a block? What kind of horseshoe, isn't it? Here's my magnet. I find magnets amazing, really, that by its very nature, it draws another object to it without touching it. Just by being near it, it attracts. But remember that a magnet repels as well as attracts. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is a magnet. You'll see that all the way through Luke. People are were drawn to him, and they still are drawn to him. But remember, people are also repelled by him. The gospel's penultimate moment is his execution. Don't forget that. Jesus is a magnet in the gospel. He is irresistible. But who does he attract, and why does he attract them? Who does he repel, and why are they repelled? What difference does it make then and indeed now? How is it that a Judean peasant stretches his hands across the centuries and controls the destiny of men and of nations? And one answer is that people all across the world, indeed in the Ukraine today, 
and in this room this morning, have experienced Christ's transforming grace. And we are going to trace that grace through the Gospel of Luke in Lent. So far this year, we've set up the terms in our year of God's grace. Grace is a gift. We've noted that. That's what the word means. And the free gift of God is given without regard to status. In Christ, he loves you, despite your working life, your achievements, your gender, your race. And he saves people, despite their sin and their addictions and their folly. We said it a moment ago in Romans chapter 5, Christ died while we were still his enemies. Or in Titus chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, he saved me. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, his grace. But we have noted, this is all recapping the series in January, the gift comes with an obligation. Grace, Paul writes to Titus, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and yes, to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait. So grace must transform. If grace makes no practical impact in your daily life, you've not experienced grace as God intended for you to experience his grace. And we'll trace such grace and indeed the transformation it brings right here in Luke. And after Easter, we'll trace that grace in the book of Galatians. Now, for ease, and as I said, memory, on page nine, three points to make today. Firstly, the magnet. Secondly, who is attracted to the magnet. And thirdly, who is repelled by the magnet. Firstly, the magnet. Well, Jesus is the magnet. I want to show you that this morning. In chapter 4, verse 4, after being tempted like Israel in the wilderness, but after 40 days, he comes back faithful to his father. 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the north in the power of the Spirit. That'll be important for Isaiah 61. And we read, news about him spread through the whole countryside. In this day and age, you might call him a rock star, except that he is not a rock star. He was teaching, verse 15, in their synagogues. And we read, everyone praised him. He then goes to his hometown in Nazareth. Scholars argue about how big the town was, but possibly less than 500 people. So it's a small town. On Google Maps, you can see right there, red dot. <laughs> That's where it is today and, and then. Nazareth, Nazareth is a town with a chip on its shoulder, like lots of small towns. There's even a joke about Nazareth in John chapter 1. Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a joke. We have a similar joke in Australia when we say, what's the best thing about Woiwoi? You know the joke? What's the best thing about Woiwoi? The road out of there. I love Woiwoi, by the way. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Have you ever heard such infinite irony? Jesus came out of Nazareth. He's in his hometown. 
and he goes to the synagogue, this is his home church. You want to see where Nazareth is in relation to the Sea of Galilee? And he reads a famous prophecy from 7th century BC, the prophet Isaiah, about a mysterious one, an unnamed one, on whom the Spirit of God rests. He reads it out, I'll come to that in a moment, but after he reads it out, 4 verse 20, he rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He's a magnet. Verse 21, then he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now that's magnetic. At least it's bold. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Then there's a kerfuffle, they try to throw him off a cliff, but at the end of our section today, he walks the 40 kilometers to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, uh, what, take two days? Then he walked down to Capernaum, uh, went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath day, he taught the people, not in his hometown. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. They had weight. When you read Luke's Gospel, and I hope you will during the season of Lent, it doesn't take too long. The first thing you'll note is that Jesus captures hearts. There is amazement, but not from everyone. There's wonder, but not from all. In the Greek New Testament, the word for amazement is the word Thalmazo, or I marvel. But even those who aren't sure of Jesus today still marvel, they still admire. It seems to me that everyone, even today, wants Jesus in their corner. I discovered this while a student at the University of Sydney when I went to the library and the stack, which is the sort of nine floors of all the dusty books that uh, no one wants to read. There in that library, there's a half a floor dedicated to the life of Jesus. And as far as I know, well, obviously I didn't read them all, <laughs> as far as I know, not one book attacking Jesus for his warlike tendencies, not one book saying, you know, Jesus wasn't that good, not one saying he was a force for evil or promoted a toxic culture. I mean, people are persuaded that the church does, but even when they do, they say, I wish the church was more like her saviour. Bertrand Russell famously wrote a short piece called Why I'm Not a Christian, 95 years ago this year. It's incredibly dated, by the way, if you get a chance to read it, it's on, online. The second half, Bertrand Russell seeks to argue why Jesus is not the best and wisest of men. And so he examines the defects in Jesus' teaching and his character. But you know what? It's aged, it doesn't wash, and no one really buys it. Most people in the world today, in some form or another, thalmadzo, marvelling. I know a guy who was pretty messed up, who read through Matthew's Gospel from the beginning, and he got to the point in chapter 5, where Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this guy's problem was sexual, sexual stuff. And instead of hating that comment, which lots of people do, or running from it, or seeking to justify himself, he said, finally, 
someone telling the truth about human sexuality and not just trying to change the goalposts to suit their own ends, which most people do. He became a follower of Jesus because of those words. Because he said, I think I can trust Jesus. Of course, he had much more to read about the grace of God, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and forgiveness, which he did. He told me later, reading a gospel of Jesus was like looking into the eyes of God and falling in. I might say that those who are attracted to Jesus often don't quite get those who aren't. Why aren't you? <laughs> and those who aren't attracted to Jesus in the same way are often puzzled by those who are and wonder about the choices they make. Full disclosure, I'm drawn to Jesus. And whenever I have questions or doubts or worries, I often say, along with the disciples in John chapter 6, to whom shall we go? Give me an alternative. You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is a magnet. Secondly then, who is attracted to the magnet? And the answer in Luke's gospel is, the humble poor, the downtrodden, the desperate, the sick, the sinners, the younger brothers who stuff up, people who know they need help, and maybe because Luke, who wrote this, was a doctor, maybe he read the ministry of Jesus through the eyes of those who needed help. This is our text for next week. Jesus said to people who saw themselves in the set of being fairly moral, he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. Universally true, except for pregnancy, by the way. Just want to point that out. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, said Jesus, but sinners to repentance. You'll see that through the series. Tax collectors reform, lepers get healed, stuff-ups are welcomed home, women who are shamed are embraced, demon-possessed people are given a right mind, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, seriously, print up a copy of Luke's Gospel and put a red cross next to anyone in the Gospel who's in trouble, anyone whom Jesus serves. I promise you, you'll be making that mark a lot of times. And Luke 4 is the beginning of it all. In Luke 4, we find the programmatic statement of Luke, the agenda of Jesus that's then outlined through the whole of Luke. Jesus holds in his hand a scroll. He didn't have bound books like we have today. A scroll from the prophet Isaiah in that synagogue in his hometown. He asks for a certain scroll to be handed to him. He knows what he wants to read. He's read this scroll his whole life there in that town, in that Sunday school. At some point in his life, he knows that this text, text and the other texts about the servant in Isaiah are about him. And so he goes to his home church, he gets the scroll, unrolling it, 
He found the place where it is written in Isaiah 61, it was read to us a moment ago, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of grace. In Isaiah, to bind the brokenhearted. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus reads in Isaiah. Who is the me there? It is an unnamed one in the seventh century before Christ, a mysterious one whom they all argued about, who was this one, this servant. It's a prophecy about God's servant, whomever that is. And that one in Isaiah is drenched in God's presence, his spirit, and in the Old Testament that means he has a purpose towards salvation. And what does that one drenched in God's spirit do? He goes and proclaims good news to the poor. He goes to the blind, the prisoner, the oppressed, the brokenhearted, and he gives them good news, sight, freedom, healing, and he proclaims the year of God's grace. Then he rolls up the scroll, verse 20, gave it back to the attendant who gave him the scroll and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Chills, really. <laughs> They've had that scripture for 700 years. You're looking, Jesus says, at God's promised servant, the one to bring God's grace. Later in Isaiah, we find to give his life a ransom for many. He's come for the poor, the blind, the prisoner, the oppressed the brokenhearted. Now, you'll need to know as you read Luke that this set of people is not all poor people economically against all rich people economically. Jesus is no Marxist, despite those memes you read on Facebook from time to time. Jesus does not start a class war. He doesn't overthrow the presenting oppressor, Rome. That'll happen later. And he doesn't advocate for the redistribution of wealth. And that's a, a present question that you might apply to Jesus, but it didn't apply then. He basically says, if you are in that set of the poor, the blind, the oppressed, the prisoner, the brokenhearted, then you are ripe for a gift. You're ripe for grace. And in the Old Testament, the set called the poor are not only those who are economically poor, although they often are, more often than not, but those who are oppressed, no matter their finances, they are hungry, not just for bread, but for God. They know their sin inside, and they feel poorer for it. They are in exile and want to go home. They are depressed about the way the world is, and they don't point the finger at others. They know the truth within their own hearts and they feel powerless to do anything about it. 
save, cry, Maranatha, come Lord. Remember that it is King David who said many times in the Psalms, hear me Lord, for I am poor and needy. You'll read in Luke's Gospel that there are many wealthy people who respond in humility. Indeed, in our text today, the very next person referred to is Naaman, a very wealthy general in the Syrian army. Elisha went to him, not to the other lepers in Israel. That said, it is often the poor. That's clear in Luke. We used to live in New York City, and uh, once I went with my community group to, in winter to uh, the, the streets of the Lower East Side uh, to give out blankets in, in the snow and uh, PB&J. Anyone know what that is? PB&J? Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I walk up to this fellow on the uh, 16th and 1st Avenue, and I say to him, do you want a blanket? And he looks straight at me in the eyes, and without hesitation, he says, now why would I say no to something I need? Why would I say no to something I need? Learn from him. We need Jesus. And, full disclosure, I'm drawn to Jesus as to a magnet. Isaiah the prophet speaks of this one, speaks of Jesus and this year of grace this way, that they, he's come to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve to bestow on them a crown, you'll need to look at me, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I'm so glad we're about to sing. Why would I say no to something I need? That's who's attracted to Jesus. Who then is repelled by the magnet? This is where it becomes sharp. The answer in Luke is those who are well, the healthy, the ones too busy with their investments and their marriage and their families, the ones who are morally secure, entitled, those who find themselves strangely always correct. What a surprise, I'm correct again. The rich one who looks down on others, the religious one who justifies himself, the powerful one keeping the status quo. It's the responsible older brother that finds himself locked out of the party in the story that Jesus told in Luke 15. That is, if you find yourself in that set, this set, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. In the middle of verse 22, things take a turn for the worse. With a gentle question, isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. We know this kid. We grew up with him. We knew him when he was a 12-year-old, 11-year-old. I mean, sure, he was a model kid, good in class, but he's just a kid. And, uh, you know, when you grow up with somebody, you, you know, and they do something good, you're sort of proud of them. But, you know, the mode is still pat them on the heads. I remember when they were young. Jesus picks the heart of those who are listening 
to him speaking in verse 23, he says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Two days walk from here. You think you're so good, little Jesus? Do a trick now. Dance, monkey, dance. And then Jesus will make his famous line in verse 24, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Jesus says, it has ever been thus, read your Bible. And he gives examples. In verse 25, he said there were lots of poor people, lots of widows in the correct kosher area, but Elijah only went to the wrong kind of widow in the wrong area, the widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, the area you look down on. And in verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel, yet Elisha went only to Naaman the Syrian, a very rich man, but humbled. Only the wrong one was healed. Stephen, by the way, makes the same point in Acts chapter 7 about the way God works. Before upset, they stone him. Same thing happened to Jesus. Jesus picks their heart, but they pick Jesus' indictment. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They're going to kill him. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It's magnetic. <laughs> and, of course, a foreshadow of his death. When they will get him eventually, they'll seek to edit him from their life. But it wasn't time for him to die. So he walked through the crowd and went on his way. This set of people, they were repelled. And you'll see plenty of that in Luke. So, there are two sets in Luke's gospel. There's the humble poor who receive, they need God, they know they need God, and they're transformed. We're going to have a look at them through the series. Then there's what I might call the arrogant rich, in many ways rich, in many ways poor. And they walk away, or rather, they seek to edit God out of their lives and indeed uh, seek to kill Jesus. Why? Because too much is going to have to change. Now, which set are you in? And what will you do about it? Some of us are acutely aware of our need. This Lent series is for you this year of God's favour, not referring to our teaching program, uh, rather to the life of Jesus. Now, I take it that there'll be many of us in this room that will immediately place ourselves in the category of rich. After all, you live in Australia. And if you own a car, then that really puts you in the category of profoundly rich in the world, certainly by comparison. And maybe you say to yourself, I'm healthy or happy or free, and, you know, really, you, you make a comparison to other people, you know, I don't know, like Putin, and you say, look, you know, I wouldn't start a land war in Europe. I'm actually an okay sort of person. And you're not telling yourself a lie. You say to yourself, I'm not one of the oppressed ones. I believe that Luke was written. One of the challenges of Luke is to get people who consider themselves in the rich set to face, to orientate themselves to the people who are in the poor set and to want what they have. Humbled, thirsty, 
needy. I do not believe that Luke was primarily written to get the rich to share with the poor, although we will come to the story of the Good Samaritan in due time. To help those less fortunate than ourselves, to give back because society gave so much to me, that's not the Gospel of Luke. It's not to get the rich to share with the poor, although we'll come to the Good Samaritan, but rather for the poor to share what they have with the rich. Jesus doesn't ask us then to simply help the poor, although we'll come to the story of the Good Samaritan, but rather to become the poor. After all, the meek shall inherit the earth, not the strong. The beggar is invited to the feast, the rich one who's just got married or has got to seek their investments, say no to the invitation. The blind receive their sight, whereas those who see are blinded and the dead are raised. Charles Wesley picked it when he said, if in listening to Jesus you hear his voice, you laugh the dead receive. Let me leave you with these words. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. New life the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. Let's pray. Father, today we want to be in the category of the humble poor. Now, the ones who've been humble because we know the sin within we know our brokenheartedness, our need, our suffering. We know what kind of world we live in. We know the world that you have promised and we're thirsty for it. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. Make us one who rejoices in the promise that you have given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. But more importantly, Father, we pray that we might hear the voice of Jesus risen from the dead. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Give us new life here in this moment. We pray this for Christ's sake. We say, to this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen.